last time we began to deal with the fundamental reasons for date setting. And this is in your notes. You know, uh, I already filled the blanks in here for the reasons. Many Christians, number one, many Christians find it very difficult to avoid making dogmatic speculations about current events. And reason number two, because people easily fall prey to faulty biblical interpretations. And here was interp faulty interpretation number one. Here's your first blanks tonight, just a super quick review. Misunderstanding the biblical concept of the last days. Unpacked each of these. Go back and watch last week if you haven't. Faulty interpretation number two, spiritualizing texts that have an obvious common sense meaning. Faulty interpretation number three, overstating the implications of biblical prophecy. And faulty in interpretation number four, failing to be attentive to the biblical context. That's a big one. Failing to be attentive to the biblical context. So this evening, we're going to continue by looking at more faulty biblical interpretations. And here's number five. We start new material here tonight. Here's your blank. Number five, directly contradicting Scripture. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 13, the second gospel. Mark chapter 13. And here is the, this is the Mark rendering of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is preaching about his own Return And in Mark chapter 13, look with me at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What an amazing statement, and it is true. Here we have them tonight. From an obscure carpenter in Galilee, we see his words tonight two millennia later. Verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. Look what the word teaches here. Here's your blanks. Number one, his word will never pass away. So this, this, his statements don't go away. Number two, his word says only the Father knows. Fascinating. Incredible humility on his part. And number three, his word explicitly states that we can't know the time. We can't know the time. <laughs> that would have stopped a lot. We wouldn't need this mini-series if people had just listened to that through the ages. We can't know the time, period, exclamation point. So in the clearest possible way, date setting contradicts scripture. Faulty interpretation number six, here's your blanks teaching that biblical numbers reveal secrets, teaching that biblical numbers reveal secrets about the date of the rapture. Last time we looked at Harold Camping's 1994 prediction uh, and his famous pig prophecy. Another one of those, if you haven't seen last week, number 48, you should go back. So I'd like to give you more of the biblical arithmetic uh, and uh, the uh, arithmetic that uh, convinced him that Jesus was returning in 1994. Let's look at some actual biblical mathematics that Camping presented in his book. Here's the text from Genesis 37. These are the records of the generations of Jacob, Joseph, his 11th son, when 17 years of age was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. So notice here, 
17 here is associated with Joseph. This again is unpacked in the book by Camping. And then uh, 10 chapters later in Genesis 47, here's the beginning of that text. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So 17 is associated with Jacob. Notice, we'll see in a minute why, it's actually associated with Egypt. But for camping's needs, Jacob is associated with 17. So here's how he started putting this together. 17 represents Joseph, which rep who's, of course, clearly, uh, we did an entire 11-week series looking at the, the prophetic foreshadowings of Christ. And Joseph, we spent two weeks on it. He's such an impressive foreshadowing or type or typical of Christ. Um, so 17 represents Joseph, which means it represents Christ. Um, and 17 re represents Jacob, who had this dream about uh, going up on his ladder into heaven. So you got that? 17 represents Christ, and 17 rep represents heaven. Uh, so camping uh, uh, calculated. Now following, follow this very closely, because it's some really impressive prophetic numerology. Camping now adds Joseph's 17 years to Jacob's 17 years and gets 34. For some completely unknown reason, he multiplies 34 by 100 and gets a total of 3,400 years. Then he makes a very insightful linkage to Joshua. Remember, in Hebrew, the word Joshua is Yeheshua, or for short, Yeshua, which you, of course, have heard transliterated through, <coughs> excuse me, the Aramaic to Greek is Jesus. So, right, Joshua, uh, meaning Jesus in the Greek, who led, he, of course, jo uh, Joshua led them into Canaan, uh, a picture of the promised land and therefore a, a heavenly promised land in the picture is the idea. And the, he believed, Camping believed the year was 1407. By the way, if you want to know when you can get archaeologically hard dates in biblical history, that happens at the end of Solomon's reign, 931 BC, the dividing of the kingdom under Rehoboam, his son, and Jeroboam, who was not an heir to the throne. That hard date is 931, and after that, uh, scholars, uh, archaeologists are very confident about dates, but 1407 would be a, a guess. He, he, you'll see why he, he chose this, uh, but he's, he's confident it's 1407 BC. So, so let me make sure you're following here, right? Here's the math of Joseph, Jacob, Joshua, and Israel crossing the Jordan into the promised land, or if you will, going to heaven. Here's, uh, here's your blanks, write it in, minus 1407, right, for 1407 BC, plus 3,400 years, that's back to the 17 plus 17 times 100. Uh, you have to add one, remember, because there's no zero year. One BC goes directly into one AD, so you have to add one. And that gets you to, ready, here's your last blank, 1994. Isn't this exciting? How amazing is this that the Bible's told us that Jesus is going to come back in 1994. So let's take a big step back and ask a simple question. Now, it seems funny today because we're more than a quarter of a century later. Um, but back then, this was a big deal. This was a quarter of a million books sold. This was the, the talk on, all, on Christian radio and, and Christian television, okay? So it was a really big deal back in 1994. 
So as we take uh, this step back and ask a simple question, what possible biblical justification could camping have to support the conclusion that the number 17 represents heaven? His very pathetic dotted lines are Jacob, he links that to a 17, and Jacob has a dream about going up into heaven, and so 17 therefore represents heaven. And In fact, let me point something out. I can make a stronger case that 17 actually stands for wickedness or sin rather than heaven. I already pointed out that Jacob lived, I think, 140 years. He spent 17 years in Egypt, which is always typical of, is always representative of sin. That's why the Exodus took them out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery, out of the bondage of sin, a picture of redemption. Um, but uh, look in 2 Kings chapter 13, Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, so here's one of the kings of the northern kingdom, Jehoahaz became king over Israel at Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. Okay, ready? Here's a 17, and look at the association. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. And from 2 Chronicles chapter 12, now we're getting to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the southern kingdom. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. And he did, you ready? He did evil in the sight of the Lord because he did not, his heart did not seek the Lord. And then look here at Revelation chapter 13, the first verse. And the dragon, which we're told there in chapter 12 and 13, is Satan, the devil. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So, ten plus seven is 17. Ooh, notice the little secret prophetic twist there of numerology that I've pulled off. You probably can't understand that because you haven't had the revelation that I have. So maybe 17 is actually a number that means the Antichrist, as opposed to Joseph, Jesus, returning, Jacob, meaning heaven, and a time of the rapture. Now, obviously, this is tongue-in-cheek. I made this up. But here's the bottom line. As with all date setters, camping's numerology and arithmetic theatrics are totally arbitrary, completely made up, snatched out of thin air, and they mean precisely, you ready? They mean precisely nothing. At best, they're a distraction to the church and a waste of time. But at worst, their false prophecy and lead believers astray, and it strengthens the case. Every time it comes and goes, and they're wrong again, it strengthens the case of those who mock the entire concept of Christ's return. Faulty interpretation number seven. Here's your blanks. False teaching regarding why Jesus didn't know the day of his return can lead to theological errors that have profound consequences. Let me say that again because there's three blanks. False teaching regarding why Jesus didn't know the day of his return can lead to theological errors that have profound consequences. So let me uh, read from this. I love this book, by the way. <laughs> in response, well, I think it's next week or the following week, we'll talk a little bit about 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988. Some of you may have been around for that one. Um, but this is 99 reasons why 
No one knows when Christ will return. I, I love this. I love this book. What a great, uh, what a great retort uh, in the title. But listen to this one. The Lord first called Bang Ik Ha, a 12-year-old boy from Korea, in July 1987 at midnight in a worship service. God allegedly told him, therefore, this is what God said to this 12-year-old boy, therefore, just as I have prepared John for the Son of Man, for before the Son of Man came to earth, again, I am, I am preparing Bang Ik Ha. God reportedly called Ha to prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. Listen to this quote. God showed his mother, Hyung Jong Lee, in her dream that a child with a sword and a book in his hand who was taller than the mountains in the midst of storms and peals of thunder and blood. Then a scroll came down from heaven and said, the book of Revelation. So Ha would supposedly fulfill the prophecies of the book of Revelation. According to the Tabarith World Mission, headed by this young prophet, I'd put that in quotes, True Christians can know the time of Christ's return. God allegedly commanded Bang Hik Ha's followers, here's the quote, know the time of my return. This is supposedly from God. The ones who know the time of my return are blessed. Those who denied that Christ would return in October of 1992 were labeled, ready? They were labeled heretics for not believing the date set. God had reportedly said that those who did not discern second, Christ's second coming date would be punished by God. Pretty interesting. How is it that these prophetic movements, supposedly inspired by the Holy Spirit, can get around Christ's clear teaching that he didn't even know the day of his own return? Let me show you now. One of the major or, uh, organizations involved in what was called the Hugo, that's a Korean word, the Hugo movement, this uh, organization was named the Mission for Coming Days. And here's how they got around the biblical teachings. Here's what the Mission for Coming Days contends. Here's your blanks. Number one, the reason Jesus didn't know when he would return is because he gave up his deity during his life on earth. That's a direct quote from their prophets. And number two, now that he's in heaven, he, Jesus, he has regained his deity and knowledge as God and is revealing the date of his return to a few special followers of his. That was what they contended about why Jesus didn't know it then, but did, does know it now and is revealing it to those who will listen. So this is the explanation of why he didn't know the day of his return on earth. And let me point out that it would be easy to blow right through this seemingly obscure issue unless we think about the theological implications of this teaching. They deny that Jesus was God when he was manifested in the flesh. So notice the slippery slide. Here's your blanks. It starts false prophecy, date setting, which is always false prophecy, date setting. And that leads to, here's your next blank, that leads to heresy. The heresy, we can know the day. No, Jesus said no one knows the day. It's a universal doctrine throughout the church age from the church. 
false prophecy leads to heresy, leads to, ready, blasphemy. What's the blasphemy? Christ wasn't God when he came as Savior. The Messiah wasn't God. He was only human. When he was incarnate, he was not divine. That is blaspheming against the second person of the Godhead, calling him only human and not God. And notice something else. They use scripture to support their heresy. Actually, they misuse scripture, but multitudes are misled by their biblical manipulation. So now we can see that this issue, the issue like date setting that may on the surface appear to be relatively harmless and hardly worth paying attention to can actually have much larger implications than they seem to at first glance. So tonight, we're going to see how to identify false teaching and manipulation of the biblical text. We'll do this by looking at how Christians have misused the word to explain why Jesus didn't know the day of his return. Here's the first error they make. Error number one, here's your blank. They say that Jesus had to decline his deity to become human. Listen to that. They say that Jesus had to decline his deity to become human. In reality, the scripture is full of clear teachings that Jesus was simultaneously fully God and fully human. Think of the teaching of Paul in Colossians, I believe it is, where he says, and in him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily flesh, in bodily form. So simultaneously, he was fully God and fully human. But what, did he, what he did do was decline some of the benefits of deity. We'll see the, how the Philippians shows us in, this in the text a, a little later. So even though Jesus remained fully divine, he gave up. Look what he gave up. He gave up two things. He gave up omniscience. He gave up his all knowledge. He could literally say, I don't know when I'm coming back. So he gave up his benefit of knowing everything, even though he was God. And he gave up immortality. He gave up that eternal, immortal nature, which, he, which could not have died. Think of it. He became fully human and therefore mortal so that he could die on the cross. It's inconceivable, but it's true. Error number two, they misinterpret, here's your blank, they misinterpret the biblical term, son of man. They teach that Ezekiel showed that the term son of man corresponds to someone who's human, not divine. You may have noticed this in Ezekiel. God talks to him all the time, calling Ezekiel son of man. In fact, God refers to the prophet six times as the son of man. He actually does this in the first verse of each of chapters two through seven, if you want to look it up. First verse chapters 2 through 7. And so the false teachers contend that this establishes that the term son of man refers to a person who's human and not divine. And they'll point to the passages where Jesus referred to himself or is referred to as the son of man. So for example, turn with me, you're in Mark, turn to the left one book to the first gospel, Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. 
And in Matthew chapter 8, look with me at verse 18. Here's one of those instances. Verse 18, it's a new paragraph there. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe that, sa uh, that said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So those who use the argument to explain why Jesus didn't know the date of his return say that the use of the term Son of Man means that he's acknowledging that he's not divine when he's on earth. He's acknowledging he was just like Ezekiel, just a human, not divine. But look with me at the Great Commission. Now turn to Matthew chapter 16. Same book, Matthew chapter 16. Look with me at verse 13. Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Of course, referring to himself. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you know this, this incredible, great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the Son of Man was also the Son of God. But to this, this passage, they, the, the heretics, respond, the false teachers, by saying that being the Son of God doesn't mean that he was God while he was the Son of Man. They'll point to the universal child, childhood of God, that we are all sons and daughters of God. So in that sense, it didn't necessarily mean he was divine. But this shows how important it is to search the Scripture widely for the whole counsel of God on important matters. Rather than just lifting certain texts that support your particular view, on this issue, notice the scripture clearly teaches that when this term was used about Christ, it was in fact confirming his deity, not denying it. And this is shown in the story of Stephen's stoning. Look with me at Acts chapter 7, I think it is. At, yep, Acts chapter 7, Stephen's stoning. Acts chapter 7, look with me at verse 54. Verse 54, Acts chapter 7. New paragraph there. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Stephen, of course, has said this incredible message about the, the, the highly exalted Christ. Uh, and look at this. They're going crazy because he has affirmed the resurrection of Christ. And it says, but being filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So remember, it's Acts. It's after the ascension. Jesus is now at the right hand of God. We know for sure he is the great, uh, the great uh, God, the Son, next to the Father. So we know for sure he is, he is right now divine, for sure. He's at the right hand of God. Verse 56, look at this. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice this. Even though he was after the ascension, and Jesus was now clearly in his divine, heavenly, post-resurrection form, the word still calls him the Son of Man. But the real nail in the coffin 
coincidentally, <laughs> smack in the middle of the second coming teaching. Look at here, uh, this is in your text from Matthew chapter 24, the Matthew rendering of the Olivet Discourse. Look at this, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Here's the second coming. And the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, ready? Then, talk about awesome God coming back to the earth. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's right. On the great day of the Lord, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will come in mighty power and great glory. And guess what name he uses for himself on that day? The Son of Man. So, so much <clears throat> for the Son of Man not being God. Error number three, they misinterpret, number three, they misinterpret the kenosis passage. You may be familiar with this passage, amazing. Kenosis meaning emptying himself, emptying himself of those two benefits of being divine. Uh, and look at this um, uh, from uh, verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was with Christ Jesus. So although he existed in the form of God, letter A, here's what the false prophets are teaching. Letter A, Jesus existed as God in the past. That's what they're saying is being affirmed there, that in the past he was God, before he was incarnate. This, of course, is true. He was God in the past, before he was incarnate. But it goes on, letter uh, next, look at verse six. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, kenosis in Greek, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Notice likeness, appearance. This is what they emphasize when they misteach this. Appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's your blanks in letter B. Ready? Jesus was made in the likeness of men, so here's what they misteach. Here's the blank. He became a human and was not God while in the flesh. So notice the first statement about what he had always been from eternity past, that he was God, uh, was true. But this is not true, where they say he became a human and was not God while he was in the flesh. And then let her see the false teachers. Look at verse 9. For this, this is how they misteach this passage. For this reason also God exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. By the way, in biblical thought, someone bowing only bows to God. No one else can be worshipped other than God. So notice, the at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So notice what they now say. They say now, well, Paul is now teaching in Philippians after the ascension, after God, Jesus has gone back to God. So he used to be God, and then while he was incarnate, he wasn't God. We've seen how that's a misteaching, but that's what they teach. And now that Paul is after 
Pentecost, after the ascension, now he's back to being ready. Here's your, here's your blank for number C. After he ascended, then he became God again. Let me show you this. For some who think uh, visually or graphically, um, let me show you what... Uh, let me, uh, there's, a, there's a grid there. Go ahead and, and fill it in. We'll start actually on the bottom, the knowledge. Remember we talked about how part of the kenosis, part of the emptying himself, was he gave up his omnip, uh, omniscience. So guess what? He had to go to Hebrew school. You ready for this? Talk about ironic. The, inca the incarnate word of God had to learn the written word of God. He didn't just boom, he knew it all the word. He had to learn the word because he was not omniscient. So notice that before the incarnate, incarnation, right, his, he, his knowledge was divine. As part of the Godhead, this is what the misteachers are, are saying, uh, and we'll see in a minute in the form. Okay, and then on earth, his knowledge was human. And that's actually true. That's, for instance, that's one of the reasons why uh, someone touches him and is healed and he says, who touched me? I felt power go out from me. Notice that he had given up his omnipotence there as well. Because omnipotence would never feel loss of power because it's an unlimited thing. So there he is not omnipotent and there he's not omniscient. He actually has to find out the woman who had touch, touched him. So this is actually true. And this is how heresy gets started. Heresy gets started when you take some biblical truth, but then teach in opposi opposition to the whole word of God that, uh, that uh, touches the matter. Okay, And then they're saying after the ascension, he goes back to being divine. Okay, Back to being divine. Nothing wrong with that. That, in fact, is classic orthodox theology. He was omnipotent, uh, omnipotent <laughs> and he was omniscient, uh, and then he kenosed himself. He emptied himself of that and didn't see being equal with God, something to be grasped while he was human. And then he ascended to the Father and is at the right hand of the Father, fully, completely divine in every single attribute. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. Okay? But the form, here's where they mess up. What they say is, he was God... Here's your blanks. He was God before the incarnation, which of course is true. But this is a real key. On earth, he was only human. He gave up his divinity in form, is what they say. And then after the ascension, he went back to being God. This and this is a disaster theologically. So, this kind of false teaching can sound reasonable, but shows us how important it is for us to test the spirits, as the scripture tells us, to defend the faith. And this issue gives us a great opportunity to see how to identify and how to respond to heresy. This, uh, and why, why is this particular heresy so important to be able to identify? Some people might be saying, eh, what, you know, what's the big deal? What's really at stake here? Well, the answer is because this is the same heresy that's taught by Mormons. Listen very carefully. Jesus was a man, they believe, 
but through his doing the right thing and obeying the law, he became divine. He became God by his works. It should be a common practice for us to continually be asking the hard questions and searching scripture for the answers, or we will be carried off with things that start entire global cults. So here's the question. Was the Messiah God while he was human? Look at this from Isaiah chapter uh, 53. Here's your, here's your blanks first. He was definitely fully human and mortal. Notice what Isaiah 53 says, this great suffering servant passage. His grave was assigned, there's his mortality. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Again, the immortality of God was given, emptied of Jesus when he emptied himself. And then next, look at Isaiah chapter 9. This is incredible. You know this undoubtedly. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about what that verse says. It says the child, the son, is also the great I am, Yahweh. El Shaddai, mighty God. So here's your blanks, write it in. He was simultaneously, Jesus was simultaneously fully human, the child that was born from a human womb, fully human, and fully God. The Son is the eternal Father. Can we figure it out? Of course not. If we could fully figure out and comprehend the Trinity, then, we would, then he would not be infinite. He would not be the God that the Bible teaches us about. Application, so let's do our application. Application number one. Here you go. The reason so many believers get taken by, in by false teaching is because we don't relentlessly, we don't relentlessly pursue the word. Tonight we've seen how something that began as merely date setting ended up with asking whether Jesus was God when he was human. And what are the implications of this? Think about this. Let this soak in. If Jesus wasn't God when he died on the cross, then his blood was no more able to wash away the sins of the world than the blood of any other Jewish prophet or for that matter, the Passover lamb, or any other bled animal. If Jesus was not God on the cross when he died, then we are all lost. So how could good Christian people follow a biblical teacher all the way to the point where they had unknowingly forfeited the ability of Jesus Christ to save the world? Because... Because the church has lost something really important. Let's look briefly at an event in Thessalonica during one of the missionary journeys. Turn to Acts chapter 17. You're in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 17. Here it is. Look at verse 1, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went with them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is, he would have said to them, Meshiach. He is the Messiah. He is Christ. And some of them who were persuaded, they joined Paul and Silas, along with great multitudes of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring out the people bring them out to the people. Verse 6, and when they did not find them, they were dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Look at verse 10, the next paragraph now. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. <laughs> they were just... <laughs> They, they didn't learn. <laughs> Everywhere they went, they got hosed and beaten and stoned every time they'd teach in the, in the synagogue. Ready? Verse 11. Now, these were more noble-minded in Berea than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Listen to that. These new believers, examining the scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so. The scripture teaches some important principles for being able to identify heresy here. Ready? Write it in. Number one, here's your blank. They specifically tested the teachings to see if they matched the word. They specifically tested the teachings of Paul and Silas to see if they matched the word, examining them daily to see if they were so. Number two, they didn't leave identification of false teaching to the experts. Oh, church, this is so important. They didn't leave identification of false teaching to the experts. They didn't leave identification of false teaching to the seminaries. And oh, Lord, today, many of our seminaries are leading the heresy. Number three, they held their teachers accountable. Oof. They held their teachers accountable. They listened to what they said, and then they went to the scriptures to see. Number four, ready? They did this by examining the scriptures daily. Examining the scriptures daily. So, now let's return to the specific issue that's come up tonight. We've seen that the date setters are trying to come up with a way to explain why Jesus didn't know what the date of his return would be while he was on the earth. But the reason they're doing this is to try to convince their followers that the fact that Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, that that statement was a temporary fact. It was for only back then and not a universal doctrine that's still operating today. That's why they ended up with this slide is because they wanted to make a point that that statement of Jesus that we don't know and he doesn't know and nobody knows the day was only for back then. So they teach that this concept is no longer valid and that Jesus, now that he's back to being God, conceive of thinking that way as a biblical believer. Now that he's back to being God, is revealing the day of his return to his, of course, his special prophets, who they consider themselves to be. So let me ask you a question. 
having gone through this now and this, what fundamental historic Christian doctrine is at stake here? Here's your blank. The doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. And remember, if Jesus wasn't God the Son, part of the one true God when he died on the cross, then his blood is not effective for saving. So this is, gets at the very heart of the Trinity. If Jesus was not the triune God, the second person of the triune God on the cross, all is lost. And this is a really important point. Many well-meaning uh, well church leaders uh, look at this and they take these first steps toward false teaching with what seems to be like relatively trivial issues related to truth, right? Just a, a bit of an alteration. And yet, what began as something very subtle, like tonight's teaching of date setting, has often ended up leading masses of believers astray. And this brings up an important personal question for all of us. How are you going to ensure that this doesn't happen to you? on any number of important issues that really matter. We've seen the answer. We do this, we protect ourselves from this by examining the scripture daily to see if what your teachers and your preachers and your bloggers and the authors of the books that you're reading, we test it against scripture to see if what they're saying is actually true. Because remember, it was always the priesthood. This is, not a, this is not a seditious statement about authority in the church. God has set up authority. But remember, it was always the priests that led Israel into idolatry. It was always the priesthood that led them into idolatry. So we must, all of us must, protect the church from false teaching. So let me add a sobering update on the church today. Did you know that the mo most mainline denominations now no longer believe the fundamental teachings of the Christian faith? Think of that. Most mainline denominations no longer believe the fundamental teachings of the Christian faith. So let me give you a quick challenge related to this teaching. The Trinity. Can you sit down with the Bible right now and establish the doctrine of the Trinity? I don't mean in its full orb. Uh, way, but but can you can you put together God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? So let's use this as an example. This is a core of tonight's teaching. Even though some people may say, "Well, this is pretty elementary," it's not elementary. That's why there's so much heresy in the church, and why so seminary so many seminaries and other places have 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 drifted. Let's use this as an example to use the Scripture to defend the faith. So number one, point number one. Ready? The Father is God. Where do we get that from? All over the place, but you ready? Here it is from Isaiah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. In the Hebrew, that's not a phrase. In the Hebrew, you know what that is? One word, Yahweh. It's actually four letters, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Ready? So what he says is, so that you may know and believe me and understand that Yahweh, I am. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God, there was no strange God among you. So 
you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, for, ready, Yahweh. In the text here it says, I am God, but he's actually just saying the tetragrammaton there. For from, even from eternity, Yahweh, I am. Number two, the Son is God. Look from John 8. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you know what Jesus just said? Unless you believe that Yahweh, he's saying, I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I am the mighty God, I am El Shaddai. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, can you believe it? The Son of Man is Yahweh. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, Yahweh. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. So here he is saying, I'm Yahweh. I am the God. And I listen to my Father, who is also the one God. Together. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, 2,000 years before Jesus, Yahweh, I am. I was the ancient of days 2,000 years before this when Abraham was born. And then you're still in Acts. So go back to the fifth chapter of Acts. Fifth chapter of Acts. And number three, you ready? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the doctrine of the Trinity. Look at this, verse 1, chapter 5. This is a tough time for Ananias and Sapphira, but it makes an unbelievable statement about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So by the way, this is nothing about saying, they should have given all the money. This is about them pretending to give all the money when they only gave a portion. It's about the deception of the Holy Spirit, deceiving God. Ready? Three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Notice who he lied to. He lied to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived of this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men. Ready? Who's he lied to? The Holy Spirit. You have not lied to men, but to God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The God of the Bible is one God, and simultaneously plural in his personality. This is why all the way in, in Genesis, you're reflecting the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. Guess who changes that? The Jehovah's Witnesses in their Bible, because they don't believe that Jesus is God. And so they change that and they take the plural away. But there it is. In the Hebrew, let us make man, the one God, make man in our image, plural in personality. So now, link this back to, to, to this evening's topic. Why does date setting or any other trivial error matter in our lives and in the church? 
because when you begin to leave the word as the basis for everything you believe, you inevitably will be led astray. So look at what was inadvertently at stake in tonight's false teachers. This isn't just a trivial sidebar conversation for a lunatic fringe. These issues actually show how easily believers can be led astray in ways that actually end up shaking the foundations of the faith, even when they seem to be no big deal on the surface. Oh, no big deal. Jesus on the cross isn't God. All is lost. All is lost. So let me ask you again. How does God intend to prevent errors in our lives and in the church? By the, ready, by the average believer, by you and me, the average believer being able to defend the faith. And how can the average believer do this? By examining the scriptures daily. So let me ask, are you bathing your life in his word? Is it an import, as important as anything else in your life? Does it drive what matters to you? Application number two. <clears throat> you don't have to join a heretical movement to end up ignoring the ways of the Lord. You don't have to join a heretical movement to end up ignoring the ways of the Lord. Whoa, listen up. There's a growing issue in the church today. A larger and larger number of believers who go to Orthodox Bible teaching churches are choosing to ignore the word on important issues. Just pick up one of George Barna's books about the way believers, Orthodox Christians, are living today. This may be unique, this split may be unique in Christian history. Let me explain. In the past, if people started wanting to ignore parts of the scripture, they generally look for a church that had strayed from the primacy of God's word so that they could be taught what they wanted to hear. And since there have always been heretical movements, there was never a shortage of places to go for those who didn't want to hear and follow the whole counsel of God. But in recent decades, again, the sociologists show this, us this, what evangelicals who go to Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches, in recent decades, there are a growing number of people who continue to identify with biblically-based churches and hear sound biblical teaching, and yet... They make decisions in life that are inconsistent with the word while they're still claiming to follow Christ. And by the way, I go to X church and man, are they great at preaching the Bible. And boy, am I great at saying amen to what they preach. This biblical cherry picking, I don't know what else to call it. This biblical cherry picking reliably leads people astray because none of us, listen church, none of us are self-corrective. Actually, we're inherently self-deceived unless we allow ourselves to be constantly corrected and recorrected and recorrected by the daily input of the word and by constantly hearing and living out sound biblical teaching. All of us will end up in error when we begin living as if our ways are higher than God's ways, even though we'd never actually say it that way. But when we hear the word and we hear the true words preached and then we live differently, that is more dangerous than just being honest and saying, I want to go to the ear tickling church that's going to tell me 
what I want to hear because I don't want to hear the truth. Hearing the truth and rejecting it is a horrible, horrible place of judgment. And this doesn't just apply to outright rejection of the truth. It's just as true when we simply choose to ignore God's word as if it weren't true. We may be able to take the Bible test and get 100%, but if we're living as if the Bible is not true in our life, it's part of the slide. In other words, it's easy to accept and follow the parts of the word that fit our current state of mind or fit the way that we want to live or match our interests while turning away from the parts that we don't like, the parts that are inconvenient, the parts that we don't want to obey. And this segues into our final application, application number three. Here's your blanks. Biblical theology matters. Listen, church. Biblical theology matters. So beware of our risk of being taken in by the theological slide. As we end this evening, in this final application, I want to focus on the subtlety by which falsehood can make its way into our lives. It's the slippery slide. Once we start justifying, ignoring part of the word, the amount of scripture that we will find to our liking gradually decreases over time. You got that? Once we start ignoring part of the word, then the amount of scripture that we like will get gradually smaller. And the amount of scripture that we are willing to ignore will grow. And all the while, we have this amazing ability to think that we still believe the Bible and that we haven't really rejected God's ways. And this discussion prepares us to see the reliable pattern of the slippery slide. I've given you blanks here, so you have to concentrate on it. Look at the reliable pattern of the slippery slide. Here's your blank. First, it will make you comfortable with subtle changes in direction. First, it will make you comfortable with subtle changes in direction. Then, it will make you drowsy. You just don't hear the word anymore. Even if you're in an environment where you're hearing the word, you won't hear the word. It will make you drowsy. Then it will make you comfortable with bigger changes in direction. Remember, first you were comfortable with subtle changes in direction. Now it makes you comfortable with bigger changes in direction. Then, here's your blanks, it will deceive you into believing that all is well. It will deceive you into believing that all is well. And finally, and finally, it will ruin you. So here's tonight's warning. Beware of the enemy's most dangerous tactic, the strategy of subtle, slow, gradual, nearly imperceptible choices that gently take our minds off of Christ and off of his perfect word and off of his perfect will and move us gently into trivial disobedience. And to punctuate this warning, I'm going to end with one of the most insightful articulations of this pattern that has ever been written. This comes from the Screwtape Letters. You probably are familiar. This amazing Senior Tempter Screwtape, Junior Tempter Wormwood, and Screwtape, his uncle, is trying to teach him how to woo a Christian, a new baby Christian, away from the faith. So Wormwood is his charge. Screwtape is the Senior Tempter. My dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is that in attempting to hurry the patient, he calls the new baby believer, 
and the one whom he is supposed to tempt, the wormwood is supposed to tempt, he calls him the patient. By the way, because these are demons, when they use the term enemy, it means God. Uh, to hurry the patient, lest you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position really as it is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change in the direction of his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit from the enemy. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the light on a line which will carry him into the cold and the dark of utmost space. Listen to the insight of this next section. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and taking communion. I know that there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break that he has made from the earlier days of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends, a few new amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was when he first believed. And while he thinks this, we don't have to contend with explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin. He will only have a sense of a vague, though uneasy feeling that it hasn't been going very well lately. And now an unbelievable insight. You will say that these sins that he is dabbling in are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, Wormwood, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards will do the trick. Indeed, one of the most profound statements in all of Christian history. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Listen again to the reliable pattern of the slippery slide. First, you will make comfortable, you'll be, make, it'll make you comfortable with the subtle changes in direction. This is in your notes, as you can see. Then it will make you drowsy. Then it will make you comfortable with bigger changes in direction. Then it will deceive you into believing that all is well. And finally, it will ruin you. Tonight, as you look honestly at your life, have you begun a slide? Is there any area of your life where you can identify subtle shifts away from the ways of the Lord? Do you go to the Word frequently and allow it to challenge you and how you live? Do you test the spirits and te test the teachings and test the preaching to make sure that you're not having your ears tickled and being led astray by false teaching? And 
Do you scrutinize every part of your life by examining the eternal word of God?